Hello, this is Duran Orenstein from bestsaxophonewebsiteever.com, bringing you what I hope to be the best saxophone podcast ever. Here's where I meet with super brilliant folks from the saxophone world who will be sharing their insights, tips, tricks, and whatnot with you to inspire you to improve your craft and have a great time doing it. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the best saxophone podcast ever, and today I'm especially honored for our guest, who is Mr. David Liebman, and uh, I'll go ahead and just give you guys a little crash course in David Liebman for those of you who may not be as familiar. Shame on you in that case, but here goes. Having been featured on nearly 350 recordings as both a leader and a sideman, living saxophone legend David Liebman is one of the most influential voices on his instrument. As a youngster, he was inspired by seeing John Coltrane perform live in some of the most illustrious jazz clubs throughout New York City. A leader in the 1970s loft jazz scene in New York, Mr. Liebman's career began with game-changing stints in the groups of legendary artists such as Elvin Jones, Miles Davis, and Chick Corea. As a leader or co-leader of his own groups, including Lookout Farm, Quest, and several groups under his own name, he has pursued an eclectic direction spanning virtually every style of music under the sun. Some of the other luminaries that Mr. Liebman has performed with as both a leader and a sideman include Michael Brecker, Joe Lovano, Richie Byrach, George Mraz, Al Foster, Billy Hart, Dave Holland, and Jack DeJanet, as well as big band and radio orchestra performances throughout Europe. Placing among the top three finalists of the Downbeat Critics Poll year after year, in 2011 he placed first in the Jazz Times Critics Poll. As an educator, Mr. Liebman has visited universities and held clinics worldwide, and his published materials are considered classics in the field. 2011 saw him receiving the National Endowment for the Arts 2011 NEA Jazz Masters Award, the nation's highest honor in jazz music. So, Mr. David Liebman, welcome to the podcast. Uh, nice to be here, Duran. Thank you for having me, and uh, thanks for the listeners tuning in. Oh, my pleasure. So, I just thought I'd kick things off by asking you if you could tell us just a little bit about how you got started in music. Well, uh, piano was a centerpiece of most homes in the 50s, and my parents, my mother played a little piano, and uh, I don't remember if it was volunteer and if it was insisting that I take piano lessons. I think I wanted immediately to play the saxophone. I was very uh, enamored by early rock and roll, the beginnings of rock and roll, which officially is the mid-50s with you know Bill Haley in the comments, and then Elvis Presley was a big hero of mine. And although Elvis didn't have a saxophone, a lot of rock and roll in those days featured the tenor, specifically the tenor, as the solo instrument. This is before the guitar became really uh, the main voice in rock. And I just loved the sound of the sax, and I wanted to play it. And my parents uh, insisted you must take two years of piano before you can have an instrument of your choice. Nine, or, she, she always said ten, nine years old, ten years old, I'm not sure. But somewhere around that period, I studied with a local teacher in Brooklyn, where I'm from. And did a, the, uh, you know, what we all do, the spinning song and Fair Elise and uh, Sonata and Minuet and G or whatever, Mozart. And played piano for a few years, which ended up to probably to be the best musical decision I ever made in my life. Because um, as I now as an educator try to get across to any parents I speak to, the keyboard is the way to understanding music. 
And then finally, around 12 years old, 13 years old, I got to the tenor, first the clarinet for one year. And that was another one that you have to do before you can get what you want. And finally, around 13 years old, I was playing the tenor saxophone, studying with uh, at a little local neighborhood school in uh, my, my area of Brooklyn. And that's, you know, that's where it started. And through high school, I took part in the big band and any of kind of, kind of like the little musicals we would put on and so forth. And uh, started to go to the clubs. First time I went was when I was uh, 15, and I went to Birdland and saw Count Basie and Jerry Mulligan. I went with the older guys from the dance band, or big band. And then finally around, it was specifically February of uh, 1962 that I went. Uh, myself, I went with, took, took a little girlfriend, and we went to Birdland, and I saw Coltrane. And if there was an epiphany, that was the night. I mean, I can't tell you that night I walked out changed, but... Eventually, you know, following train and seeing jazz from then on in New York and really becoming a fan and able to see live jazz in New York City. That's what kind of, you know, made my destiny, so to say. Wow. That, yeah, that sounds so amazing. a capsule version of why I'm talking to you, but... <laughs> yeah. No, I've always wondered about what it would be like to hear Coltrane play live. And uh, I'm just assuming the intensity was unbelievable. It was, I mean, the records are, you know, there are some videos that capture now. You could find this uh, from, especially the one from Belgium, 60, the tour of 65. Uh, he plays favorite things in Naima, but it's spe specifically the tune Vigil, where mm -hmm. he starts just him and Elvin. Now it's all available on the YouTube, and it is just a glimmer of what it used to be like, because, you know, it, YouTube is eight minutes, ten minutes. But, you know, when we were there, I mean, you know, he they, they play impressions for an hour and a half sometimes. I mean, they could have wow. do a duo with Elvin, could be 45 minutes. You know, because you were moving around your seat and getting a saw back, and you look at the clock, you look at your watch, and you say, God, they're still going. And, you know, they haven't stopped. You know, it's the intensity, uh, of course, the music itself, which, you know, I'm still figuring out. Um, but the honesty and sincerity and power and seemingly serious nature of what these guys, this quartet with Elvin Jones and Jimmy Garrison and McCoy Tyner, what they were up to was just overwhelming. And, uh, you know, for a kid from Brooklyn who played what he thought was a saxophone, it was pretty amazing. And I, I just got, you know, it wasn't like I decided there, I'm going to go, you know, become a jazz musician. Those days you didn't say that. There was no, there wasn't even school for it. You know, it was just that I, I was playing this instrument. And I said, how can you possibly do that on the same instrument that I have, you know, under my bed in Brooklyn, you know, that I'm taking out to practice scales on and long tones. It just was, you know, I, I was curious, really, above all, and I loved it. it. It struck me, and it, of course, as I matured and got older and realized what, to, what was going on and learned more about jazz and music and myself and everything, it, it's all started to take shape. But it really goes back to that February evening when it was the Bill Evans Trio and the John Coltrane Quintet that was with Eric Dolphy in that, that particular week. Wow. Bill Evans, too. That sounds yeah. like amazing double whammy. Yeah, I had no idea who he was either. You know. Wow. And, and so it sounds like Coltrane's, well, I would assume that Coltrane's soprano playing had a big impact on you because you've been playing mostly sopranos yeah. throughout your career. Well, actually, it's interesting. I, I mean, the tenor was the thing. Soprano was really a relatively unknown instrument. I mean, I didn't know who Sidney Bechet was. I had never seen a soprano. And, you know, the only people on soprano at that time was, besides Kenny Deverne, you know, kind of older style, was Steve Lacey. But he lived in, in Europe. I had no idea who he was. And eventually Wayne Shorter picked it up in the late 60s. But uh, it, I must say, I, of course, I loved it, but it wasn't, I didn't think about playing it. And I didn't play it until my first true, steady musical job 
which was with a fusion band, front of one of the first fusion bands that was around 69, 70, same time as Blood, Sweat and Tears in Chicago, and this was the new new fad at that time. The band was called Ten Wheel Drive, and a New York bass band, and you, I was on salary, I got the job, and the guy said, you got to play tenor, baritone, flute, maybe clarinet, and soprano sax, because he wrote, it was five horns, and it was very, you know, a lot of writing, it was really sophisticated writing for that period. And I had to go out and buy a soprano, and that's how I started. And eventually, it just became part of my arsenal, and it developed into my main voice. Eventually, that's another story, but it really started out innocently. And I, it wasn't like I didn't even try to think about Coltrane. It was the tenor was the main thing for me. Mm-hmm. Wow. So, so uh, ten wheel. I'm sorry. Ten wheel. Was, ten wheel drive. Yeah. Ten wheel drive. That so that was your first uh, experience playing a lot of soprano. Yes, yeah, a little, you know, a little bit, and then, of course, um, when I got the gig, my first work was with Pete LaRocca, uh, I write about that extensively, he was drummer with, you know, he played with Coltrane, he played with Sonny Rollins, he was well-known drummer in the New York 60s, he's still, he's still around, he's not active, but he was my first real heavy master apprentice, let's say, uh, you know, initiation, and I played only tenor with him. It was with Miles, with Elvin, first Elvin Jones, who was first, and then Miles in this four-year period from 70, 71 to 74, that I brought out the soprano and really started playing it, uh, along with, at that time, I had Steve Grossman was the other saxophone player, and we would, you know, split the load to, you know, soprano, tenor, tenor, soprano, whatever. And, of course, when I got with Miles, the period I was with Miles in 73 and 74, and that's a very heavy, on, it was called, referred to now, because with Miles, you, you need to, pinpointed it was the on the corner stage and that was quite loud electric rock and roll funk or whatever you want to call it and i not that miles had said anything to me nor did elvin but it ended up that with that loud music the soprano i favored the soprano a lot because i could cut through it was an octave higher it was very just a practical consideration so i started i guess attaining a a, a reputation because if you were miles davis of course you have a lot of attention on you I got a reputation for soprano, and that's where the whole little relationship and love affair with soprano got planted in, I guess, in the in the eyes of the music of the jazz world, and for me also, until finally in 1980, I uh, uh, voluntarily gave up the tenor, and eventually the flute. I was playing flute all along, and that stopped in the mid-80s, and to concentrate only on the soprano, which I did until the mid-90s, almost a 15-year period, the reason being, I just really wanted to get past just what I was considering just a workmanship, workmanlike attitude towards soprano, but I wanted to get to a higher level and be able to really leave a mark on that instrument, which at that time still had some room, uh, as it, not, not like the tenor, which was so full by the 70s and 80s. Soprano really still had a rather young history, and uh, that decision got, you know, cemented my relationship with the soprano. Now, of course, now I play tenor again a little bit, but soprano is, you know, I do think of that as my main voice. Yeah, um, you know, playing with Miles Davis, uh, that's obviously one of the highest honors any jazz musician can, can get. And I was wondering if you could tell me and talk a little bit about your biggest takeaways from playing with Miles. Well, you know, of course, as you say, it was uh, career enhancing to say the least. I mean, in the sense that it was the top of the food chain for a saxophone player to be with Miles, and uh, in the tradition of Bird and Train and Wayne Shorter, among others. And, um, you know, it put, a, it put you in the spotlight and enabled you to, after that, to be able to 
have a career on your own as a leader. And that's exactly what happened with Lookout Farm, that first group. But the uh, specifics of Miles, and I'm still learning them. In fact, this is just apropos. Yesterday I taught, I'm artist and resident at the Manhattan School of Music at the graduate level. And we teach a I teach a course along with Phil Markowitz, the pianist, uh, in my my book, Centerpieces, my book, The Chromatic Approach to Melody and Jazz Melody and, jazz and Harmony. And that's the course. It's a two-year course. And just yesterday, I played something for them. I, I was talking about Nefertiti and uh, Miles' four versions of it from the studio that are available on the box set. of the It's called the Columbia Sessions, 65 to 68. And I was uh, showing them how Tony Williams, who played, you know, because Nefertiti, just a little side thing here, Nefertiti, Miles, and Wayne only played a melody. They played five, six, seven, eight times in a row. They played this little 16-bar melody. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, Tony Williams and Herbie Hancock are, and, and Ron Carter, to a certain degree, are all just dancing around amazingly. And I was just commenting on how even Tony Williams was showing evidence of what you get from Miles, which is, one thing, is to leave a statement without finishing it. And one thing Miles once said to me, the little he said musically, it was always, if anything, two or three words. He said once, he said, I don't remember the context, but he said, finish before you're done, in that gravelly voice, you know, finish before you're done. You know, and, you know, like everything from masters, when they say three words to you, especially that era of people that, you know, that, that era of people didn't articulate like we do now about the music and verbalize it. I thought about what he meant and still thinking about it. And I was showing them how Tony Williams was exactly doing that, how he would do a phrase, a drum thing, and he wouldn't, um, he wouldn't cadence. He wouldn't come to the downbeat. He left it open. So one thing you learned from Miles, to get back to your question, was that, uh, um, you can play something and in, intimate um, a gesture that will be answered by someone else in the band, in the rhythm section, especially if you're a horn player with the fact that you have a whole rhythm section behind you, or it won't be answered. In other words, being it's not incomplete, but it's being, I don't know, Miles is, was very canny, you know, it was kind of clever. Like, why give everything away and make the listener finish the statement for the listener in a way it's like leading the horse to the water but you can't make them drink but they can drink if they want and in this case i think an artistic statement is uh more powerful or let's say there's another way of presenting something which is to leave things unanswered or unfinished and that was a very big trait of miles style right from the 40s with charlie parker right to the end he was uh, he was known for leaving space and silences and ending or beginning in odd places in the bar structure or whatever and that was one thing I learned from him. And, of course, the other several things, of course, was rhythm. He was a very rhythmic player, Miles. He was very uh, um, tied into the beat and playing the beat and intensely being in the middle of the time and so forth. That was an important thing. And that helped him and I, learning through that, to bring the resources of the rhythm section to a, a unity. In other words, by playing rhythmically, certain little things you do, um, but I get too technical here. Certain things you do that make the rhythm section respond to you and coalesce and come together, which you need and you want, you know, unify under your you as the leading voice at a given moment when you're soloing. And of course, other things were like just his way of leading and his way of um, he, from everything from leading the band, from the few things he did say to people, to the way he played trumpet was a massive masterclass. And I was five feet away from him and had time with him. I mean, I was around. I hung out with him. I mean. You know, we weren't, you know, buddies, but I was there for him when he, you know, wanted company or needed company, listening to the tapes. And I must say, it was, of course, as it was with Elvin Jones and Pete LaRocca, 
and uh, anybody I was I played with in that period, um, a learning experience. But you know, Dorada goes on forever. I just made a record with Lee Konitz mm -hmm. that just recently got released. It's called Knowingly. It's on a French label. It's myself and my longtime partner on piano, Richie Byrak, and standing next to Lee Konitz for two days recording in the studio, which I certainly had never had the experience with, was a lesson again in his case of melody making, because he's like, you know, he's just Mr. Melody, uh, you know, over standard chord progression. So, you know, when, you, when you're around a master, if you're smart and if you keep your eyes and ears open, um, you will learn something. And that was definitely the lessons, several lessons, if not, you know, many from Miles and those people. It's so cool to hear about that, especially the way Miles approached music, because now when I go back and listen to Miles, I'll have a whole new conception of what to listen for. Yeah. Yeah, he was a very clever guy. I mean, one thing about Miles was that, you know, uh, outside of his personality and whatever the, the, the lore is about him and, you know, his, you know, proclivities and so forth. That's not what this is about. It's about his perception as a leader of music and his ability to see the puzzle and put the pieces together. He would have been, he's Francis Ford Coppola or, you know, or... You know, uh, he's a, a producer of a Broadway show. He's the guy who's standing there and saying, move this there, put that on, say this then, walk three feet to the left, more light, better sound. He's, he, was a, he was a producer. And, of course, he was part of the play because he could play. He was a player. But he could see the elements that make a statement powerful and uh, artistic and worthy. And he was that was his incredible... Um, gift for perception and without shame i mean he was bold he was completely confident he didn't ever, ever look he never had doubts about any of his musical moves and of course because he was miles davis you followed every inch of what he did wow very cool very cool so mm -hmm. one era that a lot of us younger players aren't that familiar is what's known as the loft scene in New York. I know you were obviously very active in that. Can you talk a little bit about what that scene was, what it, what it was about, who were some of the people involved? Yes, it was, uh, uh, it had been going on from the 50s into the 60s. In fact, there's a great series available. You can find it. It's called The Loft Project, and it was, this was a loft. It ends up to have been across the street from one of the several lofts I lived in in the 70s. But this is more of the 60s period, so it's before my time. Uh, this guy, a photographer, David Young, had a loft, and it was completely wired up for sound. He had thousands of hours of tape that had just been discovered a few years ago. Chick Corea, Steve Swallow, uh, you know, Mingus, Bird, everybody went up there. So this loft thing went on for, you know, to some extent it might still be going on, except now it's about a million dollars to own one. But in those days, these were industrial areas of Manhattan. Uh, ranging from downtown, you know, uh, just a quick tour, I means downtown is Tribeca, Soho, and s south part of, of the island, to uh, midtown Chelsea into the 20s and 30s. And they were industrial areas, and usually a lot of them were for textiles, because the textile trade fashion industry was centered in New York City at that time, and Senate Avenue was known worldwide for that. So these were places where you would, they were banging out shirts and suits and pants or whatever. And uh, when they were vacated, uh, the, they were rented to artists, and artists wanted it, and I say artists meaning painters, photographers, and musicians because of several reasons. Number one, they were large spaces, so a painter needed it for canvases. Number two, uh, anybody who was in the building, if anybody was left in these old buildings, uh, these were like pre-war buildings, they uh, would be gone at five o'clock and on weekends and uh, holidays, so you could 
music meant that you didn't bother anybody and the police weren't knocking on your door. Uh, so you could play from 5 o'clock till, you know, 7 o'clock the next morning, which is what we did. And, of course, photographers liked it because they were large lofts with big windows. These are 10-foot windows, so they had natural light. And uh, I was introduced to the lofts in the 60s, you know, through Bob Moses, a drummer friend of mine who was my, really my first associate in this music, who uh, lived in a loft at 16, 17 years old already, right on the Bowery, at 110 Bowery. It's right off the Manhattan Bridge near Canal Street. And uh, I said, boy, this is it. This is what you got to do. This is how you get it together. You get instruments. You are playing all the time. You're jamming all the time. And uh, when I finished college, I went to university. I went to NYU for a degree in American history. It's you know, a side story. But when I finished school, I knew that I wanted to live in a loft. And then I wanted to do the dance. It meant have instruments open 24 hours a day or whatever that was you could play. And just play, play, play. Um, anything. And that was where, what I did in 1969. And I had my first loft was on West 19th Street between 6th and 7th Avenue. And it ended up to be a building of three lofts, small, 1,200 square feet, which is quite small, that had been the shirt factory. And it ended up that Dave Holland, when he joined Miles Davis, who I had met before that in London in 67, when he came over, I got him the place in the second floor. And when Chick Corea was, he was, I think, leaving his getting divorced, separated from his family. Uh, he was with Miles. He ended up on the first floor. So we had three lofts in this building popping all the time. And the advantage was that you could play and guys would come up and play. You could have six saxophone players at one time, a couple of drummers. And uh, in, that, that, in that period, the late 60s, a lot of the music we played was free jazz. Um, I'll just mention a, a particular record, Ascension by Coltrane, which was a pretty big project of John's with like eight guys playing together at the same time. And quite free and quite avant-garde and quite chaotic and it's quite powerful music. This was kind of the style we were involved in. And it got to such a point with the loss, and at least in this period, that I, uh, along with a couple of my boys, started an association that we got funding and we became a 501c nonprofit. And we ended up uh, having a home in a, a, a renovated church that was, found, was funded by the Rubin Foundation, which also funded the National Symphony and blah, blah, blah. And this was called Free Life Communication. And I was the president of it, and this was an organization to present music in, in first in the lofts and in churches and museums, and eventually in this thing called space, the Space for Innovative Development. This is all 1970-71, before I started working with Elvin and Miles. Um, so the loft period was a. Then let me let me finish this up with Sam Rivers had a very famous loft called Rivby, in the late 70s that had many many concerts. So this scene went on from the 50s through the 70s into the 80s, and then of course. It dissipated because it became fashionable and suddenly you had Wall Street guys in lofts because, of, you know, they fix them up and they were like palaces rather than a small apartment. So the, the way we used to have it is not happening anymore now. But that was a good 20 or 30 year period and would be like an incubation period for musicians. I mean, that's where you developed and played and rehearsed and uh, got your music together. And Charles Mingus lived in lofts. Lynette Coleman had lofts. I mean, established musicians liked it because you had space and you could play all the time. So it was a certain period, a very, very special in particular to New York City. Sounds like a lot of fun. Wow. It was great. I mean, we had, of course, we had fun. You're up all night, and then you go out to Chinatown because you could eat all night in Chinatown. You come <laughs> back, you'd sleep, you you know, you'd do whatever you had to do to get going again, and boom, next day, start playing again. And, and everybody played every instrument. That's why I kind of got whatever I can do on drums and piano. And, you know, guys would say, oh, well, I'll play some drums now. You play saxophone. You know, we'd, we had a good time, and I have tapes of it, and uh, someday they'll see the light of day, I hope, but... Uh, this was a, a, for me, it was my really incubation period and my school, 
because it, as I said, there was no formal schooling and I didn't have any formal schooling and there wasn't any available in New York City at that time. It was Berkeley School of Music and University of Miami and Indiana and North Texas State and that was it. In, in America, there was nothing in New York City. So mm -hmm. this is how we learned. This is how I, I met with my people and you, you ask who, I mean, it was Randy Brecker, Michael Brecker, uh, of course, Steve Grossman, Bob Moses, Lenny White, as I mentioned, Shikaria, Dave Holland, uh, Gene Perla, Al Foster, uh, you know, many names and some who have gone and, you know, have left us and some who are not in music anymore, but there was a, a core of people. And of course, in those days, jazz was not so popular among young people as it is now. So if there were 30 or 40 or 50 young guys involved in jazz citywide, that would be a lot. And now it's hundreds. But uh, so we all knew each other and that's how we got gigs and that's how I got to Miles and Elvin, really, because it was like a community in a way. Mm-hmm. Amazing. That's really amazing. It's a piece of history. Yeah, definitely. So speaking of incubation periods, I once read, and correct me if, I, uh, if it's not accurate, but I, I once read that there was a six-month period in your life where you basically locked yourself in a cabin, did yeah. nothing but practice. For... <laughs> yes, the day I graduated from NYU, uh -huh. in fact, where I played Naima solo tenor, um, in my graduation with the blue you know, the gown and the cap and everything. I had arranged in the, a month or two earlier uh, to find a place up in, um, not not Woodstock, but the Woodstock area. This is pre-Woodstock that we call Woodstock, but in that area, because I knew that area. I found a little place and um, that I could rent, and I think my girlfriend for the, at the time, and bass player came with me. I don't really remember the bass player's name, but we, I knew I had to do practicing. So I drove a taxi for exactly, I got a taxi license, and in April, in mid-break, mid whatever it was, of my senior year in college at NYU, mm -hmm. in the Bronx, this was NYU in the Bronx, they had an uptown division, not in the village where everybody knows it. I got a license and I drove straight 18 hours a day for six days in a row. And I made enough money, because we're talking a rent of probably I don't know, $200 a month, if, if that. And I'm living off of, you know, rice and beans or whatever. Um, I made enough money because my parents, you know, they, that was it. They had supported me through school and they said, you know, you got it now. And I got a taxi license to make some cash and got it and went away. And I spent from June till Thanksgiving in this, in a cabin, practicing. And I had some visitors. I remember Randy Brecker came up and Dave Holland, when, that was when he just joined Miles and so forth. But uh, basically I did, the work I did is the work I'm still, <laughs> I'm still living off of because I have never had that period again. Uh -huh. I mean, I play, I of course play a lot played since then but I didn't have that six months where I really was doing six to ten hours a day as best as I could I didn't have anybody guiding me I just knew I had to do certain things and I did it and that is basically the foundation of my jazz playing in the end I mean, because it never leaves you especially if you do it at that age which was 21 22 what kind of stuff were you practicing well transcription is a big part of what I uh, teach and what I believe in and you know I have a big summary of it on my website and a DVD available the you know, guide to, to transcription uh, the reason transcription is so important to me is because the subtleties of uh, rhythm and of expression and of nuance that are not or cannot be really notated uh, are only obtainable by imitation. And imitation means, in this case, transcribing. You take down the solo, you sing the solo, you write the solo, you play the solo, you analyze the solo. It is a whole process that brings you closer to the heart of what is the feeling of the, especially the rhythm. Because we can learn the notes, I can teach you chords and scales from now until the end of time, you know, harmony, and that's what I do in Manhattan School Music. 
but I can't really, and no one can, teach you or a student the feel that would be authentically jazz. Now, of course, in jazz, we have styles, stylists, everybody has a different uh, way of expressing themselves, which is the beauty of jazz. You know, you separate Dexter Gordon from uh, Stan Getz by their sound, number one, and by their rhythmical thing, and of course, their choice of notes, but you must remember, there's only 12 notes, so that's limited. It's really their feel and their way of speaking, and it really comes to language and talking in a way. It's just like we know one person from another by their voice and by their expression. You can't really, you know, in jazz, there's a vernacular, and you have to learn it. It's like my, my metaphor is if you're learning French in high school or college and you speak French or Spanish or whatever you learn and then you go to that country and start to talk, they look at you like you, you, know, like you don't know anything because you haven't heard it. You, you're using textbook French. You've got to live in Paris or France and watch TV and uh, take part in a cafe and eventually in six months it's in your ear and you get it. And that's exactly what this is about, to get the real feel, uh, the, 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 the intangibles. Now, the only way I know it is, is transcribing and playing exactly along with Sonny Rollins or Dexter Gordon or whomever. And that's basically what I did in those months because somebody had tipped me off from that. It had come through Lenny Tristano, who I had studied with. He had you do that uh, in, a, in a little bit different way than I do it now. But that was the first time I understood what it was to play along with Lester Young and to sing with Lester Young to try to understand the feeling, which can't be described in words. And can't get, you can't get it through reading it. You've got to get it through imitating the way somebody does it and it's speech really imitation in this case it's using a saxophone mm -hmm. wow wow so well speaking of practicing and developing as a player one of your books that's just really amazing to me is the book developing a personal saxophone sound and obviously there's a tremendous amount of information in that book but i was wondering if you could just touch on a few two or three of the major points emphasized in the book well, this is the, the guru of saxophone was Joe Allard. I saw him mentioned on your site there. And, you know, he was, he taught everybody. He was at Juilliard and Manhattan School of Music and New England Conservatory. And, of course, he taught repertoire and classical. But he was very open. In those days, that wasn't so usual for a classical guy to be okay with jazz. And he was first clarinet in the Bell Telephone Hour in those days. You know, TV was live, NBC, uh, radio, TV, you know, they had a band, a live band. And Toscanini, Arturo Toscanini, was the conductor. After he was at the, uh, you know, the uh, uh, Philharmonic in New York, they, 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 um, they wanted him to stay in New York, and they basically formed the NBC Symphony Orchestra for him. And Joe was first clarinet. Uh, so he was a classical guy, but loved jazz and appreciated it and dabbled in it a little bit. And so he taught all of us. He taught me and Grossman and Michael and Brecker, and he gave Coltrane lessons, you know, Stan Getz. I mean, everybody went to him. He was like a doctor. You went and you saw him, came to New York. <laughs> from around the world at that time, whoever knew it, you know, those, time, those days not so many, but, you know, you had to see Joe Allen, and he gave you one lesson, basically, basically it was one lesson, and my book is a distillation and a, what's the word, a, a broadening and a verbalization of his main concepts, and I went to him and told, you know, we were going to, we started out doing the book together, I taped it, I have seven DVD or dats or uh, transferred from cassettes of him talking, and we, you know, questioning him at his home up, he had a summer home in New Hampshire. This is 10 years after I studied with him, when I was in my 30s, and it was 19, well, I was about, let's see, I was in my 40s already, 1986, 87, 88, and me questioning him about things he had taught me, which I had not really, I wasn't quite sure of everything, and I, I'm the kind of guy that likes to really understand why something is what it is. And he, you know, he was pretty loose with it. He just said, do it this way, do it that way, practice the overtones, and get your throat involved, and it'll be fine, and hear it in your head first. Your throat will take care of it just like it does when you sing or when you speak. And the reed is just a manipulation that the lip takes care of by a consequence of what the ear tells the lip what to do. 
and through the larynx and the vocal cords. And that's, you know, and his thing was, uh, you had it on your site, to, breathe, to, to blow is to breathe, uh, to sing is to breathe. He had one of these kind of things in French that he would say, which was that it was a natural thing to play the saxophone. And that well, the problem was that you, we were stressing and doing things that were inhibiting our natural voice to come out, which would be at playing with ease, uh, without any uh, uh, obstruction, and whatever is in your imagination can come out, including, most importantly, your tone. That's why I call it developing a personal saxophone sound. In other words, if, if you and I read the same text, you, your mother will know it's you and not me reading it because of your voice, and she's familiar with it. That means you and I and everybody has a absolute a tone, a way of not just a, not just language or nuance, but our sound and our voice is is natural to the mind, shape of my chest cavity and vocal cords and neck cavity and so forth. And we're all different. Every every human being on the planet has a different voice. So is there a way of getting that into your instrument, whatever the instrument? And I'm generalizing here: piano, trombone. I don't care what instrument it is. Can you get your sound to be manifested through the instrument? And the contention is, of course, if you hear Yasha Heifetz, that's him next to Yehudi Menuhin playing the same Bartok piece or whatever. So we have it with, you know, in jazz. We have ten, tenor players, and how is it that you and I, or an experienced listener, can say in three notes that that's next to Gordon or Joe Henderson? We know because of their voice and their sound. So my point is, Joe's point was, that it's really easier than you think. We just have to stop doing things, physical things, that inhibit the body's ability to naturally portray this so-called voice through the horn. So what my book is about is ways of doing it and the things to watch for. And of course, the crucial exercise are the overtones, which again, is well, I'm sure well described on your site. My, my site is there and my book is there. The fact that when you hit a low note and you get the overtone series, and then you go to that real fingering for that note, so it's low B flat, you hit the first overtone, which is middle B flat, and then you finger B flat, that you try to match the sound and the color because that low B flat is a natural sound because the whole horn is being covered, blah, blah, blah. The larynx, the vocal cords do what they naturally have to do to get the sound since you didn't change the fingering, you did it by overtones, etc., etc. Playing the mouthpiece alone, getting a scale on the mouthpiece, being able to manipulate the mouthpiece in a way that you can actually get pitched because your voice is projecting there just like singing. These are kind of the main principles and uh, the book is really an explanation of why these principles work. I got into, I'm not going to say high physics here, but I got into, you know, acoustics and explanation of the body to try to have a student know why things are what they are. I mean, you know, but Joe was like, just do it. He explained it, you know, you take out an anatomy book and you, you look at Gray's anatomy of the larynx and you see the, the drawing. Uh, but I wanted to go a little further and make somebody who really is interested uh, understand the whys, uh, why things work the way they work. And that's what the book and the DVD is the book but physical because I do the, I do everything you know right on the DVD mm. very interesting very it's uh it's really cool to hear it out of the horse's mouth so to speak so. yeah well I got close to Joe and he was a wonderful man and he was very giving and uh, he affected everybody the same way which was like there was a before Joe and after Joe when you took lessons and it really did you could take one lesson with him and get it because he had that same mantra over and over again wow amazing so shifting gears a little bit, I was just wondering if I could get your take on where you see jazz music headed in the next five years or so. Well, I think we're in a, you know, a, a period now, I don't know how long, but the uh, last 10, 20 years has seen the expansion of jazz really beyond uh, any borders. I mean, there was always European jazz, of course. It's traditionally always been Japanese, uh, you know, musicians interested in jazz and so forth. 
but now it's everywhere. I mean, I'm the head of an organization now. Listeners can they can go right to the site on my site, International Association of Schools of Jazz, and we go mm -hmm. to 20. We have 40 countries involved in that. I mean, we meet every year. This year is in Sao Paulo, Brazil, in, in July. Um, you know, jazz is universal. It's everywhere now, and uh, it means that people are getting it, and they're mixing it with their stuff. I mean, uh, that's the point, and that's the future, and that's what's going on. There are the, the, the categories that existed, and it's, there's too many categories to even say now. It used to be straight-ahead jazz, free jazz, Dixieland. That was it. And then, oh, modal jazz, fusion jazz, uh, okay, ethnic, a little bit of Indian, like I first did when I was starting in the 70s with the Badal Roy. I right, played a little Indian beat, and we did some, you know, uh, tabla shit and all that. Okay, cool. But now it's way, way past that. I mean, everybody's in on the act. And the good thing is the young people and their interest. I mean, as we see with the proliferation of schools, there were no schools in New York. Now there's about 10. I mean, and there's students from probably, you know, 50, 60 countries attending any one of these schools. Um, there's the, the, so much interest uh, and, and curiosity and so much talent because of the computer, really. In the end, the Internet has enhanced education unbelievably. You turn on YouTube, like I just referred to, you see Coltrane. You don't have to be there in 1962. You, you know, you you can see it. Okay, it's not live, but it's you get it. You get the you get the point. And all this education, your your website, my site, uh, what's going on with the you know people talking about everything, anything you know how to operate on a you know your left cuticle. I mean, everything is available now, and that means that young people or anybody interested, um, there's no lack of education anymore. And the level of students. I mean, my students in Manhattan School of Music are so good. I mean, they're way beyond what I was at that, that, that period. I mean, they're even beyond me now in some ways. I mean, it's unbelievable what's going on. So this is a very good period for that, that we're seeing interest, we're seeing education, we're seeing the mixture of jazz with other musics and all that. This is the very positive side of the coin. Unfortunately, the negative side of the coin, as we speak, the Congress is voting on whether they're going to cut funding to NPR. They already cut funding for the Masters of Jazz, which I got. This next year will be the last time they're going to do that. Um, we have no support. We have very few places to play. Uh, the economics of having a club are so hard and so difficult for even a well-meaning person that it's almost impossible to have the laboratory that is necessary for incubating jazz. Mm -hmm. we, don't have, we don't have what, what I have. I got the tail end of it, uh, where you played six months, eight months a year, in man hours spent. They don't do it now. Now they're, they, they, they're much better, they're quicker at it, but they don't have that chance to play and perform and to make a living from it, and I, I don't know what's going to happen. I mean, I just yesterday speaking to these students who are about to graduate with a master's degree from the Manhattan School of Music. It doesn't get any better. They're all 25, 26 years old. I mean, you know, <laughs> I have nothing to tell. I say, I, I don't know what to tell you. You are so overqualified for the job. You're the most educated uh, class of ever, uh, ever. Every year is the most educated, and I don't know what you're going to do. And I'm, I, I have to be honest with you, I, 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 I pray for you. I hope you'll find a life in music that is fulfilling, uh, that can support a family, and that is, uh, you know, of nature that is, you know, high level and sophisticated and really not, you know, hopefully not, not lower than what you can do. But I can't be very optimistic about it because things are not good in that, in that sense. So we have a, uh, when you ask a future jazz, we have a double-sided coin, just like everything in life. We have the very positive events and we have some very negative, uh, not good signs happening also. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay, well, this podcast has probably gone by as for me as quick as any podcast could possibly go. I, 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 could, I, talk. Could, talk, I could talk to Ron. I'm a New York 
Jewish guy and you know we can talk, baby. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, I, I don't even think I got to half of the things I wanted to ask you about. But um, I was just wondering if you could leave us with any parting advice for sax players out there. I know you kind of touched on this, but for those who do want to make a, a life out of jazz music, do you have any parting words of advice for them? Well, of course, I, you know, I, 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 I want to be and am optimistic because art wins out in the end. We can't live without it. Um, the art of music, and in this case, jazz, is, uh, you know, it's an essential part of life, no matter what goes on outside of our situation. I mean, it's a tsunami, an earthquake, a lack of gigs and everything like that, there's going to always be somebody talking art and doing it, and a person who wants to devote themselves to it, um, it's great. It's hard work. There are no guarantees. You've got to figure out all the logistics how to do it, how to survive, how to be good at what you do. But my contention is that if you really want it and you need to have it, there's always room at the top. Cream rises to the top and uh, there's a space. It may be small, but there's something there that can satisfy a person who really wants it. But you got to really want it. It can't be just, you know, I'm doing it because I, I like it or I have nothing better to do and it seems interesting and fun. That's okay for a beginning, but eventually and pretty fast and more these days than even before you got to get to it pretty quickly that this is what you must do and you are going to be very good at something and uh you know that means doing all the work that's that everybody else does that you see going on around you it's very clear now what needs to be done no mystery anymore like in my period when musicians didn't talk about what to do now it's very clear it's all over the place um it means really sticking to it and just uh, persevering and letting that that's your goal and not giving up uh, whatever the instrument, saxophone or whatever, if you want to do art, and art means more than just being good on your instrument, it means the ability to translate, to emote, to say something of value to the world, to that audience that may hopefully sitting in front of you, whether it's five people or 5,000 people, you have something that you want to reveal, that you have thought about, and you have developed, and you have technically are proficient enough through practice to be able to warrant their sitting in front of you and probably paying that you are worthy of that and have something of value to say to them. And that's even beyond playing saxophone. That's about you as a person. So it's a big, um, it's a big responsibility to be uh, an artist, uh, regardless jazz or saxophone or whatever, but to take that upon yourself. And uh, it takes a lot of dedication. You really got to want to do it. That's my main thing. Beautiful. Beautiful. All right. Well, um, I'll let you get on with your day, but um, it's really okay, been amazing talking to you. Thank you. And so much. Yeah. Appreciate it. And please let me know when this goes on and where, and let me put it on my site and put it on Facebook and all that stuff so people can get to your site. Okay, great. All right. Great. And uh, I'll just leave everyone with a track Crossbreeding off uh, one of, uh, is this your very most recent recording? This is the most recent. Well, there's one on the web, uh, you know, uh, download only, but which is live. But this is the record of the group that I've had for 20 years with Vic Juris, Marco Marcinko, and Tony Marino, and uh, this record called Turnaround, the music of Ornette Coleman, actually won last year's record of the year in jazz for the German jazz critics, which is quite something because they are rough. <laughs> um, but uh, uh, it's us doing Ornette Coleman tunes uh, in, you know, my arrangements for the most part. And, you know, just to mention, I, you know, through the years have always enjoyed s switching between my own original music and re what I call repertoire of everything from Alec Wilder to, to Puccini to, of course, Monk and Coltrane and Miles, and uh, in this case, Ornette Coleman. So that's where this track comes from. And this is one of Ornette's early tunes, uh, quite an intense tune, and it's pretty free in the style of, 
you know, the beginnings of really a free jazz. We changed it a little bit, but uh, it's a it's an intense little track. So enjoy it. Cool. Crossbreeding. All right. Thanks so much, Mr. Liebman. And Thank you. Uh, that's it for us today. Thank you, sir. And all the best to you all to listeners and uh, good luck. Okay. Bye bye.